during the south uh, uh, west monsoon until today closed down the ports of india operation will be impossible because of high winds and high waves since when did people know about this our first written source is the papers of the Eritrean sea uh, notes by a greek merchant sailor about the trade between Egypt and India and Eastern Africa. And he's talking about someone called who by observing the location of the ports and the conditions of the sea was the first one to not cling to the coast but directly cross the sea to India. I hope I'm unmuted again. Okay. Um, this is a source of, uh, out of the, the annals of the Han. And they're talking about the trading ships of the barbarians, which took Chinese India. The voyage would take 10 months on sea, 10, uh, 10 days over land, and another two months on sea. And for Quebec, they'd know that the voyage could take eight months in the Bay of Bengal and eight months in this. Uh, southern Chinese uh, Ocean. We have the impression that the voyage was divided by two. Let's have a look at the nautical chart again about the distance we are talking about. Um, with an average of two to three knots, each of these legs would take something like a month. This very much fits into what Pliny tells us about the voyage from the uh, Bab el Mandeb to, to Southwest India, 40 days. The whole voyage from the Persian Gulf to China will take us four months. And that means without a stop. You cannot take on water, you cannot rest. And you will easily note that a voyage of four months will go beyond, uh, beyond, will take more than two of these circuits. So you'd have to wait for change again. But it might take two years. What is the impression of people who travel on this maritime road? Here's Faxian, a Chinese pilgrim of the 5th century, is about a boundless expanse of a deep and bottomless sea, where in the darkness of the night only the great waves were seen, full of monsters of the deep. The same was reported by Atisha, who traveled in the 10th century, more or less the same voyage. He, gets, he and his uh, pals get very terrified coming into a storm. And man is not a maritime animal. Um, you note, please, this person sitting there on a ship uh, depicted on the Borobudur. This guy is really miserable. I suppose he is seasick. All our reporters tell us that the sailors found their way by observing the sun, the moon, and the stars. There's a reason for that. On board of a ship, you can see something like three to five nautical miles into any direction. And everything you would be behind the horizon. Only after traveling a considerable distance, you'd see the first signs of your destination. What is mentioned most often is stars. We have a problem with stars. They rise every day four minutes earlier than the day before. So here the stars on the 7th September of 2007 at 10 o'clock are completely different to the stars 
at the same time on the 7th May of 2007. Not one star is repeated. In the north, or in the northern hand, we happily have Polaris. He is seen in Mumbai on the 15th September of 2020, quarter to 11. And if you go to March, the star, all the other stars changed, but Polaris is still where it was. And actually, at the same height above the horizon. We move south to Kochi, and Polaris will be lower down on the horizon, but still in the same bearing, nearly north. This star can, you can use to find your way on sea with this Akama. It's a small board uh, of wood which you place onto the horizon and then above it would see the star you are aiming at, North Star. And by making knots into there, you could note various heights of the North Star. If you, for example, would know the height of Mumbai and the height of Kochi, you could use this to find the latitude of your sailing. This is what our anonymous Greek sailor tells us about Hippalus, who by observing the location of the ports and the condition of the sea, found the way to India, the diagram. In the south, we have a problem. There is no Polaris. You have to look for other stars. Here's one example, uh, a part of uh, Western terminology is called Orion. And it will rise above the zenith in just the same angle. So we can use the four points it points to as kind of compass. Another one rather famous is the Southern Cross. Drawing lines with the Southern Cross in, will always end up somewhere on the south on your horizon. And there is something else. If you are sailing to the east night and if you know certain stars, it would seem that they rise behind your destination. This is called star pass navigation, something that is extensively reported being used by Pacific navigators. And believe me, you can use it still today. You look at your compass and pick a star out on the horizon and follow that. After some time, you look at your compass again and take another star which is still on the bearing you want to go to. How would that go in practice? Here's a Nanantiribon wreck sailing with the West Monsoon, the Indonesian West Monsoon, to April. Uh, and then sinking in the middle of the Java Sea. They were on a course of about 130 degrees. If we extend that course, we end up close to Samarang. And it was found a considerable amount of ceramics of just more or less the same shape of what was in the ship itself. We would believe that he actually was on the course he was sailing to. If you have a compass, you follow this red line on your compass. If you want to use a star, you have to position 30 degrees on the horizon. This is the night of the 25th December of 99, about the time I'd imagine the ship would be sailing. And you see two stars in there now since Suhail al Muflif, followed by Al Suhail, and a procession of other stars which rise in the small reddish corner down there until the next morning. This is what we call the star path which can lead you more or less into where you want to go, in this case, Samara, where after some time you'd see the mountain, which is behind it, and can make a landfall. 
I'd imagine that our friends Sipalos, the barbarian sailors who carried the Chinese ambassadors to India, or Kepnabara and Buzur, well knew about any kind of navigation that way. In 724, uh, the, uh, the Tang Dynasty sent some astronomer royals to Hanoi to make uh, observations. On their way down to the south, they found numerous stars of which they hadn't heard about. By the 11th century, Chinese used compasses. Where did these people sail to with all that knowledge? Here's Sang He's voyages of the 15th century, which apparently became the epitome of the Maritime Silk Road, which is being promoted lately. This is a world map made by uh, Indian Ramauro. And on this small corner, which is a small reddish uh, uh, quadrant, which has vanished, um, he reports about a ship which in 1420 sailed from India to a place Cape Diab and then from there for 40 days out into the open ocean to the southwest, else than wind and water. This ship was called a choncho, very probably an uh, Italian way to pronounce junk, junco, or jonco, until the 17th century designated Jong, the largest of the insular Southeast Asian ships. We have a problem with Famawa's map, it's south atop. So we actually are looking at this corner, which would be the Southern Africa. In the text 149, we hear more. They sailed beyond the Cape of Sofala. That was the locals on board, people who knew about the stars, told them that they had been sailing 2,000 miles to the southwest. In 1420, on an insular Southeast Asian vessel. They found nothing other than wind and water. This is Shanghai's voyages. And I'd imagine that the Cape of Good Hope was the southwestern terminus of Asia's maritime connections. It was only broken by the Portuguese two generations later when Bartolomeu Diaz passed the Cape. With the Portuguese, came conquerors, but just the same came, uh, came people who wrote things. So we do have more sources. Here's Alfonso de Albuquerque. He mentions a chart he got found on a, on a Sumatran ship, which he took, which showed the Cape of Good Hope. A copy of that chart was used by Abreu when he sailed to Banda, one of the Spice Islands, very probably the southeastern corner of our maritime connections. Rodrigo de Bartema, an Italian traveler in 1505, sailed on a junk, a true Malay junk from Brunei to Java, and he reports the same. The captain of his ship had a chart and a compass, and he used stars opposite to the North Star. Talking about map, here's another non-European map probably based on a Ptolemaic uh, picture of the world, made in the 12th century by an Arab in um, <coughs> Arab for one of the Norman kings of Sicily. Again, our map is south of the top, and this would be our Indian Ocean on that map. We have Al-Ramni, a place in Sumatra. We have Java, probably Java. We have a Malay Peninsula. We have China, India, and Africa. 
It's not only a map what uh, Ali Idrissi made, it's a kind of idea of what happens in the various parts and climates he is talking about. Here in, in part eight of climate one, he's talking about the people of Sabaj, which came to Safala to collect iron ore for the production of Indian wood steel. Sabaj or Sabak is an Arab name for Sumatra or Java. He repeats more or less the same in chapter seven and adds onto it Srivuza, the Arab name for Srivijaya, the maritime polity in Sumatra and the Malacca Straits. In sector nine, he repeats the same about people from Madagascar and the merchants of Srivijaya who come to Safala and trade there. Apparently in the 12th century, a Sicilian Arab would know about this voyage. Let us return to Buzurk in the 10th century, talking about a thousand ships coming to Kampalu and Pemba, Zanzibar, um, looking for trade goods for China. The islands of Avak, where they came from, are opposite to China. The voyage takes about a year. Supposedly, we again are talking about people from somewhere in insular Southeast Asia who traveled the whole expanse of the Indian Ocean. How could Buzak know about it? Or in the 8th century, it is well known that Persian traders went to Eastern Africa. It would seem in the footsteps of our Greek sailors, who in the 1st century already know about all a lot of places all the way down to the Zanzibar archipelago. You'd think that to be anecdotal. However, the notion we have about expeditions to East Africa come from a mid 9th century manuscript written by uh, a Sudanese or probably what today is Kenyan slave living in Baghdad. And we have hard data, linguistic and genetic ones, which note that at least by the 5th century, people from Southeast Asia were settling in Madagascar. Let's go to the ships they did it on, the trading ships of the barbarians, which had taken the ambassadors of Han, the Han to, China, to uh, India. Greek, just the same, know about the ships called Kulandia Fonta, which come from Crece, the Malay Peninsula, and sail to the Ganges. These ships are the largest of all the ships sailing in the ocean. And that, just the same as repeated in Chinese sources, the Kunlun Bo, 700 people, up to 1,000 is merchandise we hear in the third century. What do we know about these ships? Here's a number of movers from India. And we can compare quite much of these ships with uh, the first proper drawings we have from the uh, Dutch expedition to, the, uh, to Indonesia. There's one difference, however, the sails. The sails drawn by the Dutch are just the same as the sails being depicted on the Borobudur, or still being used in the 19th century in the uh, eastern part of the Malay archipelago. How reliable are these representations? It is surprising that the 
reliefs on the Borobudur depict a very clear picture of the rigging of these ships, including most of the uh, necessary ropes, lines, which handle the sails. A cry from our Indian rurals. The ships on the Borobudur show us something else, outriggers, which are not found on 19th century or 16th century vessels. For outriggers, we have to go through this, the Austronesian migration. Migration of people using Austronesian languages, which became the largest of maritime movement of people. And the distribution, the eventual distribution of Austronesian languages very closely fits into the distribution of outrigger craft. It would seem that these, the outriggers, might have been man's truly first truly seaworthy vessel being used already 5,000 years ago. What does archaeology tell us about these vessels? The oldest find, as far as I know, still is the Pontian wreck, um, dating into somewhere between the 3rd and the 5th century, and being reconstructed like that. All these planks lying there apparently were connected. And they were connected by one, uh, <coughs> once by, by wooden dowels, plus an addition of ropes stitched, stitched through these small holes made there. What do we know about the use of towers? By the 10th century, Southeast Asian ships used them, and only towers. And they're still being used for shipbuilding <clears throat> all over the eastern parts of the Malay Archipelago. Stitchings are something different. Here's a find from Thailand of the 9th century, which actually is not a Thai ship. Ah, yeah, there's a difference between stitchings and sewn. The stitching, stitching rope would not, would not be continuous, while the other ones are continuous. This is called the Arabian Sea Tradition. It's an Indian Arab or Persian technology, and it was just the same used all the way down to the 20th century. What else can we know from archaeology? Here's Indonesia's oldest ship, as it's called, because seventh century, and you see on the planks these small, yeah, lugs they are called, these small boxes, which are just the same as the Nanan wreck. By now we have something like about a dozen finds of ships or remains of ships, where these small lugs are spared out on the uh, side of the planks. And there are holes in these lugs, which as we see here in situ on the Punjal wreck, are used to tie the frames of the ship onto them, these, the ribs of the ship. Here we see them in the Nananchirbon wreck, displaced, but there's still a rope, and this is a reconstruction of the Pontian wreck. It would, it would, yeah, schematically look like this. You have lashings holding the frames of the ship onto the planks, and this is called the lash lug te uh, technique. It's a major characteristic of Western Austronesian boat building. These lugs we call tambuku because they are called like that in most of the Austronesian language. How do you do them? You take a piece of timber, cut it into two, cut them out, turn them around, and you have two symmetrical planks which can be placed on starboard and port side of the hull. 
These symmetries are used for very complex ways of building ships. Not only the 10th century, but until into the 20th century, here a plank pattern from Sulawesi, where the tambugu not only mark the length of planks, but also the frames, the position of all the dowels being used in the system. Where do they come from? Here's perhaps what is, yeah, the real first ship style thing man invented, the dugout. The ethnographic record shows that uh, while doing a dugout, people tend to leave these swords in there. They could use them, or you can use them to tie outrigger beams onto them with lashings. There's a problem about that. This is the grain of the timber. And as soon as the outrigger beam starts to move, the grain will tend to break. So you're left with small pieces on the inside of the or the dugout, under which you could easily tie another piece of timber or bamboo and thus fix your outrigger. You add a wash strike and you have a much better ship. If you leave the same kind of uh, lugs on the wash strike, you have ample possibilities to fix the whole ship together. And right, this is found in the ethnographic record, all the way from Eastern Indonesia, throughout the Pacific to Hawaii. This apparently is a very long tradition, which leads us over more than 3000 years. You will have not heard anything about Chinese ships yet. They have a completely different way of building them. There would be bulwarks, it's this kind of wall inside the hull, and planks would be fastened with metal nails and clamps. The archaeological record of the, tenth, uh, of the first millennium does not note Chinese ships. As far as I know, the only other shipwreck finds in the whole expanse between China and uh, uh, Africa are some Greco-Egyptian vessels which were found in the Red Sea. In China we find just the same. Well into the Song, uh, all, all remains dated well into the Song uh, dynasty uh, are for river transportation, not coastal transportation ships. The famous Shanghai one wreck is from the 12th or 13th century. Now we have another, oh, this is Chinese ships. Um, they would be in Northern China flat bottomed. This different to the ships of Arabs or Indonesian ships which are, have a V shape. If they are V shaped and are built on a keel, they have a shallow draft. And they carry central rudders. Central rudders were adopted by the Arab, Persian, and Indian sailors, but not in the Malay Archipelago. And we have another problem with Chinese ships. First half of the second millennium developed this one, the Southeast Asian, uh, the South China Sea tradition, um, using bulwarks, but just the same, having wooden dowels to uh, connect the planks. And we have a date about 
when these ships came into usage, very probably with uh, the Yuan, which went for an attack on Java in 1293. Let's add them onto the chart. Then the second, um, first half of the second millennium, there are some finds again of Lesh, Luck and Dowell ships. But our Chinese are mainly concentrated in China. There's one find in the Paracel Islands and one rather unclear off the Cambodian coast and they all are rather late. As I said, to the best of my knowledge, we do as yet have not any early find of a Chinese ship in at least the Malayan Palaga. There's another unknown wrecks or where the information is not good enough. So we'll have to wait for something like that. The Chinese brought something else, the bed and luck sails, a rather efficient way of sailing, but it was not adopted in the Malay Archipelago or the uh, Indian Ocean, but it made its way all through the South China Sea and the peninsula. We had one part of this uh, drawing already. It's a drawing of what the Dutch saw on their first voyage coming into the Java Sea. We have a ship here like the ones on the, on the Borobudur. We have another one with outriggers. And we have one with the Chinese bed and luck sail. But all of them carry later rudders, rudders which are fixed onto the side of the ship and not in the center line of the hull. The one here would be the Jong, the largest of the many types of insular ships. This probably might be a Jong Sasana, as we had it in the uh, Japanese manuscript. This was, this is the uh, extent of uh, Jung He's voyages. We meanwhile have heard about a lot of other voyages where before the 12th century, before Chinese influence on the shipbuilding technology of the area. Why did people... Here's the cargo of the Nanhan Chirbon vessel. Um, it has to do with trade. You want to take goods to a place where these are not available and sell them. We so often hear that there were hundreds if not thousands of these ships plying the seas of Asia. So let's give that a test. The main cargo of the Nanan vessel was Chinese ceramics, some five to six hundred thousand of them, and they were heading for central and eastern Java. Happily, we do have records by the POC, the Dutch East India Company, about how many ceramics were imported into Java. Uh, ceramics were a monopoly of the company, so they recorded what went in and out of the port. Uh, there is three ports where we have no data for. Um, those I just gave an average of the other ports. These figures should be seen as indications because the Dutch were always arguing about smuggling. So let's add 20% of unrecorded imports coming from perhaps Bandremasin, maybe Makassar, which were not recorded by the Dutch. We end up with 350,000 pieces uh, market demand for ceramics in the late 18th century 
for a population of three to five million people. It is generally assumed that population density in uh, Southeast Asia, in insular Southeast Asia, didn't change much. So we'll use that number. This is three further uh, uh, rec finds and the number of ceramics they carried. This would be our demand for ceramics in Java. You'd easily see that the one Nanhan Chiribon ship would supply more than the yearly demand. Must be something wrong. We take the average, we end up with something between one and two and a half voyages per year, which could supply the whole demand for ceramics for Java. The people of Java of the 18th century were Muslim. Here is a piece of, uh, uh, yeah, from the Nanajiribok wreck compared to sensors which I've seen in Malaysia being used for Buddhist ceremonial usage. In Hinduism, you just the same would need bowls for offerings to the gods. And just the same in Malaysia, we find these bowls being sold, for example, here in Malacca, and they're produced in Selangor. They don't look much to the more than 80,000 of these bowls being found on the Nanajirapon rack. So let us just assume double numbers for ceremonial use for ceramics. We just the same end up with not a high amount of voyages. And if you just look at the Nanajirapon rack, that one ship was still enough to supply all the ceramics for Eastern and Central Java for one year. There's a tradition of using ceramics in, uh, as grave goods in Eastern Indonesia. Um, let us assume these numbers, which would mean that everybody dying in Eastern Indonesia would get one, get to get at least five pieces of ceramics in his grave. We look at station numbers, and again, the Nanancherbon wreck would have would have done two voyages, and all demand for ceramics would have been satisfied. For the average, we end up with this. You should keep in mind that this is based on really inflated numbers of population demand, as well as uh, the demand for for grave goods. This would mean every grave, even in the center of the island of Seram would be supplied with five ceramics. Do we have other information about the volume of trade? Here's a source from the 13th century. He's talking about 70 to 80 ships per year coming into Aden, one of the termini of the uh, Indian Ocean trade. This would just the same include coastal traffic, traffic to Persia and the Eastern African coast. For the 8th century, we have a note from Guangzhou. In a really booming year, more than 40 ships came. In the other years, it was less. A note by Buzurk. In, the, about, in, the second, uh, in, in about the middle of the 10th century, the loss of three from Siraf. Um, 
The loss of officers, captains, and well-known merchants was enough to contribute considerably to the uh, decline of the ports of Sirap and Saimur. You have met some of these people, the captains and merchants, Hippalos, Kepnabara, or barbarian sailors. Um, the Chinese sources mention some more. Here's Li Hemo of the 10th century. Here's Li Hemo. He comes for some for Kui, Srivijaya. There is a private trader from Srivijaya. And actually, there's some guy called Kuya Duoli. He represents both Srivijaya and the Middle East. Where did these ships go to? In 1511, the Portuguese conquered Malacca, one of the major marts of the, uh, whatever you want to call it, the silk, ceramics, or spice road. In 1513, the Javanese and Malay, uh, Malay fleet tried to retake Malacca. They had 30, 35 big ships, more than 500 tons of cargo capacity. 70 smaller ones, but just in chance, a small Portuguese fleet came along with heavy artillery and sank most of them. This was repeated three or four further times. And by 1515, we hear that the governor of India had burned and defeated all enemy ships, and there was none left. The same happened in India, and the same happened to the Persians and the Arabs. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Uh, thank you, Horst, for a really um, extensive uh, survey of, of the Maritime Silk Road and particularly how it, how it was sailed and by, by who it was sailed and the different types of ship technology and, and so forth. Really fascinating uh, discussion. Um, so at this point, I'm going to hand over to Natalie. She's going to act as respondent tonight. Um, we've got about another 25, 30 minutes to have a discussion. So, uh, Natalie, I'll let you start off. Thanks. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you, Horst. Um, that was fantastic. What a PowerPoint. Um, Horst, I always enjoy your PowerPoint presentations, uh, particularly the animations. But uh, the, the level of detail in, in the one tonight was um, uh, unsurpassed. So, so thank you for spending so much time putting together a really fantastic presentation for us. Um, everything that you shared with us tonight usually gets wrapped up in um, introductions to the Maritime Silk Road. So it's really exciting to be spending some time thinking about the detail of the mechanics of how this so-called Silk Road functioned, um, about the climate, about the environment, what it was like to be on one of these boats, um, and, and how they actually worked. So I guess that brings me to the first thing that I want to draw your attention to, um, to, to all our listeners and, and the people who've dialed in tonight, and that is this idea of mechanics and technologies. So Horst started with this idea that um, there are no roads on the sea, that, that roads are, are things that connect two termini. But that was not the case because this was a maritime landscape where, as Faixian says, the sea was this boundless expanse. It was deep and bottomless. And the only thing that you could see in the middle of the night were the waves crashing down on your boat. Um, it was a place where ports were forced to close due to dangerous conditions, where big cyclones and, and even bigger typhoons could send your ship to the bottom of the sea. It was dangerous and to embark on one of these voyages and return was quite exceptional. Um, if you travelled across the Indian Ocean, you might not return. 
Uh, the voyages took months, if not years, um, if you were lucky enough to return. And so to, to be able to make these journeys successfully, you needed knowledge of things like the rhythm of the monsoon and its relationship with the currents. And you needed to know about the sun and the moon and particularly the stars. And Horst, you introduced us to this wonderful idea of the star path and your animations in that section were really fantastic. I think they really conveyed the complexity of what those early navigators were able to, um, to work with. Uh, and you introduced us to the Kamal, this navigational technology um, using string and wood and, and a human body. And you showed us just how skilled those navigators must have been to, to travel, particularly in the southern latitudes where Polaris was um, not easily visible or not visible at all once you passed Sri Lanka. Uh, and and to, to be able to navigate to places that they wanted to go to um, and, and, you know, end up at the right spot. So you also explained to us how these ships were constructed and how these construction techniques can be ways of telling where a ship was made. So we saw the dowels and the stitching on the Pontian wreck, and these are still in use in South Sulawesi today, where, where you're, you're calling in from, Horst. Um, you see the sewn hull vessels that make up the Arabian Sea tradition, like the Belitung, which didn't get a mention tonight, but uh, that's the one that my podcast is about. So thanks for the shout out there, Stephen. I will share that link. If you're interested in um, hearing more about the Belitung, the, the stitch of uh, the sewn hull technique. Uh, and you also talked about the lash blood technique, which is a major characteristic of Western Austronesian boat building. And then you introduced us to what Michael Flecker has described as the South China Sea tradition, which came later and which showed this intermingling of technologies. So bulwarks and nails from China and, and dowels and timbers from Southeast Asia. But you left us with this really, um, this sort of provocation, provocation um, that there's no archeological proof of ocean going Chinese ships before the 11th century. So there were river vessels, but no ocean going vessels. And this might be something that we come back to in the discussion. The other thing you've done with your talk, in addition to mechanics and, and technologies, is you've really shown us the value of multidisciplinary approaches to studying the past. So one of the things I love about your presentation is how many sources you've drawn on. Um, you've looked at inscriptions and text. You've got that engraving from Borobudur in which you picked out the sails and the outriggers. And maybe something that I would like to come back to is the little figure that you drew our attention to, uh, who appeared to be seasick. Um, but maybe there's another interpretation there. Maybe this little figure was praying. Um, maybe they were praying because they were seasick. So uh, I'd, I'd really like to explore that later um, because I, I know Himanshu Prabha Ray, who I think is calling in tonight, um, has this idea of coastal shrines and the ability of people to pray on board was quite limited using objects, but you know, there were recitations and prayers that could take place in a small contained environment like a vessel. So maybe just something to come back to. You also draw on the accounts of lots of people. Um, you've, I mentioned Faishan, you've got Atisha, and they all describe these voyages as terrifying. Um, you've drawn on the Periplus of Eritrea, of course, and uh, on people like Captain Abara and Buzug. You showed us what archaeology reveals with these wonderful examples of the Punjal Hajo and the Turabon and other shipwrecks from, from the region. And you also drew on iconography with images and illustrations and maps. And of course, language in your discussion about Tambuku and uh, the spread of language through uh, outrigger craft. On top of all this, um, if, if you don't know of Horst, um, you might not know that he, he's a very experienced sailor. And so what he's done is he's brought his own experience uh, at, at sea. 
And I think that really brings a very unique perspective to what is already a fantastically uh, multidisciplinary approach. And what it allows you to do is to calculate, um, as you did, the bearing of the Turibon wreck, uh, which is a wreck that you've done a lot of work on, of course, and, and allow us to work backwards um, using its bearing to determine the day that it might have wrecked uh, in the 10th century, which is quite astonishing. And there might also be the opportunity later to talk about, uh, in addition to these um, iconographic and archeological sources and, and text, it'd be great to come back and um, explore further the role of experimental archaeology in informing how we understand the mechanics of the Silk Road and the fantastic ship reconstructions um, that we've seen in, in Indonesia uh, and also in o Oman with people like uh, Tom Vosma and Nick Burningham. And finally, you've left us with this tantalizing and really important idea that while we celebrate Zheng He's voyages of the 15th century, which sort of epitomized the Maritime Silk Road, there is extensive evidence that Southeast Asians, um, Austronesians, Persians, Arabs, Indians were all making these voyages hundreds of years earlier, well before there was any Chinese influence on the boat building technology. And in fact, you made the claim, um, which some of our audience might be interested in pursuing, that there is not even any evidence of any genuine Chinese ships in the South China Sea before, I think, the 11th or, or the 12th century. So when we're talking about the Maritime Silk Road and its modern successor, the Belt and Road Initiative, it is really so important to have this at the forefront of our mind because the discourse is so Sinocentric. But Horst, what you've done is to help us recenter Southeast Asia into our considerations of maritime histories and technologies before the arrival of the Europeans in the 16th century. And in fact, well before Zheng He's fabled voyages. So I think I'll leave it there, um, but I've got a couple of questions I'd like to explore and maybe we could come back to some of those points I raised uh, just now. Thank you. Thanks, Natalie. That's uh, for an excellent uh, summary. Horst, do you want to address any of those points right now or will we take some questions? Uh, you're muted, Horst. There you yep. go. Uh, you've muted yourself again. So. Oh. Uh, yeah, one thing that really should have been there was this idea about uh, silk. Uh, yes. It's called the Maritime Silk Road, isn't it? Um, I already thought that uh, John Guy should be talking about that, and I guess he will. Um, just the same as with the ships. Um, the production of silk already in, by the end of the first millennium was not a Chinese monopoly. We had it in, in uh, the Byzantine Empire. Uh, there were, was Persian silk and uh, Indian silk at that time. And silk was not really, as far as we know from uh, records by these India companies, uh, the main or Chinese silk was the main uh, product being carried in terms of cloth. Um, Clothes from India were much more important than those from uh, China. There is something which, uh, yeah, as Natalie said, the Belt and Road Initiative, which we should see perhaps a little bit more diplomatic from the non-Chinese side of it. Um, the great Malay, Persian, Arab traders 
were kicked out of their business by the Dutch East Indies, by the Portuguese and the English. Um, we should learn from that, I believe, for what is going to happen with the Belt and uh, Road Initiative. But then, Natalie, please uh, pick out some of the questions people put up there. Sure, let me uh, go through. There's quite a few. Uh, Natalie, you want to respond first? Well, I, I actually have one question of my own, um, which I, I would like to... I'm getting noticed. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, which I would like to raise, and that is, and some of these questions I suppose are coming through the chat, and it's this idea of the loss of the objects and the ship and the sort of, you know, all the commodities, the silk, the ceramics, whatever it was that was on board, um, the, the trade that sort of was interrupted by the, the shipwreck. Um, but one of the things you talked about so much was the skills of the people involved in putting these vessels to sea, building them, and then navigating them, the captains, the pilots, the navigators. Uh, and and the shipwrights as well on, on land. So if these ships are going down with navigators and captains on board, what are the consequences there um, in terms of the loss of knowledge? Uh, you said that there, there weren't that many voyages taking place. So what does that tell us about um, the, the loss of these people and the loss of those skills um, in terms of navigation and, and also boat building? Yeah, Natalie, I guess your question is self-answering. And we had that last, uh, in one of the last slides, uh, the quote by Buzurk, where he says, the loss of only three ships and all the people on board uh, was a major disaster for, for two of the main ports of the Indian Ocean. Um, and it is more than trade, uh, not, it is not only trade. Um, when, when thinking about this presentation, I thought about uh, the relation between those skillful people, the captains, the boat builders, and uh, local authority, or any kind of authority. Um, we find a number of uh, notes about captains being very, very received by, by the kings and queens of uh, their times. Um, there was one which I didn't mention here because it's a little tricky whether it's true or not. It's about a Persian uh, trader who is in Baros, trading for camphor. And then he is called to the court of Srivijaya, based spent several months and becomes a big, big pal of the Maharaja. At the moment, the Maharaja wants to go and attack maybe Eastern Africa, maybe Java. He has to leave everything behind, which is not transportable for his retinue for the upcoming attack. And it would, should have been said in the text. Um, the Maharaja of Sribuza decides that he gives all these goods uh, to our Persian trader. In only some months, a captain of a ship became such a big friend with uh, one of the most powerful persons in the Eastern Sea that he would take away all what the Maharaja could not carry with him. We have other notes, Persian traders conferring with uh, the uh, emperors of China. Um, and we had the people personally in, as I showed on, on one of the last slides, their names in, in the records. I imagine that this is something that has to be explored much. Um, 
A very good example of such a research would be the role of a certain Portuguese trader in Makassar, uh, who had his fingers in big money deals and big political deals. Um, him losing a ship going to Timor, on which the Makassar had invested money, was one of the reasons of the war of the POC against Makassar. We, in this case, are looking at very, very precise people. Um, we should not forget that, for example, America is so closely connected, or let's say uh, America in that sense, with Christopher Columbus. Mm -hmm. um, opening the trade to, to, to India would be Bartolomeo Diaz and Vasco da Gama. These are people, very precise people. At the moment, we, we lose them because the ships sink or they get destroyed by other powers. We not only lose their knowledge, of which they wouldn't with other people, we just the same lose um, quite some of the political and economic networks they had built up. Um, in this COVID crisis, we, we have uh, several of our great entrepreneurs talking about what they are going to do about it. We lose one of these, probably lose some part of the vaccines we need to get along with this crisis. I imagine it wouldn't have been much different in the first millennium. Mm. All right, yeah, thank you, of course. It is an interesting uh, question, right? And not just, uh, I guess people usually focus on the material loss of shipwrecks and the financial loss, but I think what the what both of you have, of course, been getting at here is the human losses, and that loss of knowledge is maybe <clears throat> just as much or even more of a um, uh, detrimental. Okay, let's take a few of the questions because uh, time is is uh, moving on. And um, there's one from Professor Fred Lockwood: um, Is there any evidence for a direct maritime route? between China and the Seychelles, Madagascar, during the Tang Dynasty, perhaps aided by the Northeast monsoon winds. I'm aware that ocean-going Daos travel vast distances and could presumably complete the return, complete the return coastal journey back to China. Forced, journey. Yeah, archaeology doesn't show us until now Chinese ships of the first millennium traveling mm. on the open sea. Um, Sure. But maybe not Chinese ships per se. I think he's just talking about trade between the Seychelles and China. But trade there would have been, for sure. Yeah. But uh, not, almost probably not on Chinese ships. Do we have much, um, I'm not sure you know off, offhand, but do we have much like archaeological evidence from the Seychelles? Like in terms of the pottery record, because usually, you know, in Southeast Asia, um, definitely in the ninth century, we see, you know, a, a quite a bit of Southeast Asia or Tang period ceramic turning up at archaeological sites. I wonder, do we see the same type of thing in the Seychelles and, and Madagascar? I do not know much about the Seychelles. Mm -hmm. uh, what is known in the Maldives, uh, we find uh, boat building technology very comparable to the Southeast Asian one. Mm. Uh, just the same here about, let's say, in Batuta coming to the Maldives and having quite a position there for, for a year or so as a, as a judge and a friend of the, the local ruler. Um, I'd imagine that the Seychelles would just the same be 
connecting into that trade. And um, there is, which is, uh, people believe it to be yeah, a little bit of strange, the role of cowrie shells all over the Indian Ocean as a kind of uh, uh, money, which I guess would be easily collected on the Seychelles. Um, to be involved in trade, you need a product that could either, let's say the Roman Greco uh, traded money to buy something uh, or something else to, 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 to sell, to exchange against the goods you want to have. Uh, with cowries, yes, you, you have a good chance to do mm -hmm. all of these titles. There's one or two questions about um, about the ceramics. I, I think I'll ask them both at once. Um, so, Bebeo asks, you know, wouldn't a lot of ceramics get damaged during the trips and therefore require more trips? And then there's a similar question um, from Jagatisan, um, which I quite like as well. Uh, any idea how much these ceramics cost to the local people? Um, maybe it's hard to get exactly but were they bought by all levels of the community as well which so it's getting at interesting questions as well because you know this who who is the actual market and is there you know if i think if we think of the tank shipwreck for example there's different levels of ceramic on that as well right there's the changsha bowls that are quite i guess lower value they do I, I presume they would still be expensive enough to purchase but then you have like you know the white wares and the green wares and so forth, which must have been, you know, much more expensive when they hit these foreign markets. So, have you, what's what's your take on that, uh, horse? Maybe in a Japanese context to, to narrow it down. <laughs> we can take it all over the Indian Ocean. Oh, yeah, we could do that if you. Product. <laughs> if you have much of a product, the price will not be overly expensive. Yeah, and actually the volumes, the volumes you were showing are quite phenomenal from uh, the Cherubon wreck, for example, so. Yeah, 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 but uh, yeah. Hmm. Other ships carried 100,000, 200,000. This is, that's the same, quite a lot. Um, what I saw on the Cherubon wreck is that we have a big mass of something like, at least from the ones we know about, which is something like 120,000. Um, of those, something like 100,000, would be just very simple bows, which with not much on them and more or less the same kind of form, the muesli bowl of the 10th century. Um, and the real high class, uh, sophisticatedly worked with, with incisions and so forth, whereas which were there, were probably not more than five to 6,000. Mm, so yeah. these are expensive. They surely were used for representation. But the normal bowl, as it was, um, was probably not overly expensive because there were so many. And secondly, not something being, um, how should I say, yeah, uh, at least in the Southeast Asian context, something that was, was overly, China wasn't far away been traded by that time for at least 300 years, maybe 400 years. Um, that might be different, let's say, in Baghdad, in the Middle East. Right. Where numbers would be something like uh, in the tens of thousands of ceramics arriving. 
But even there, tens of thousands of ceramics in the pot would still deflate the price. They only become expensive if they are either something very artistic or they are small numbers like the white bears. Um, I try to check prices, but it's very difficult to compare uh, uh, what people say about ceramics. And it's very, very rare that people say something about them um, being sold or, or so. It's very difficult to compare what they say with what our today's prices would be. I just the same imagine it like, uh, call it one of the uh, Indonesian markets, where what is sold is mainly cloth, jeans, uh, <laughs> t-shirt, plus uh, crockery, plasticware, uh, what you need for your kitchen. Uh, ceramics do have, um, at least <clears throat> um, have one thing that, that made them so attractive, that is uh, their durability. Uh, there was a question about breaking them. Hmm. I do have one here, which is actually from the left. It has a crack, but uh, it didn't break for a thousand years, sinking and being carried then from the side to, to Jakarta and then being carried in, in suitcases, whatever, until it arrived here on my desk in Makassar. Hmm. Um, they're durable. And so on one hand, they wouldn't break so easily, but secondly, you Ask yourself, when did you buy your last uh, mug, ceramic mug for coffee? Um, if there is not much demand, but lots of that stuff, the price couldn't be overly high. It becomes, as soon as we are talking about things for representation. And there, as still today on the uh, antique markets, very nice blue and white Ming fetches high prices. But one of these uh, simple, uh, let's say, green bowls, you can sell them as old as they are, and Chinese ceramic and all, you can sell them for. You can buy them in, in, in Jakarta for, for something like, give it $10, still today. Hmm. Can I jump in on this question? Yeah, absolutely. Breakage as well. Um, you know, the alternative was transporting them on camel or horseback by the road, and of course, many more breakages that way and, and much smaller quantities as well because they were heavy and big and bulky. Um, so, you know, we're talking about technologies. One of the beautiful things in, in the display at the ACM um, with the tongue shipwreck is uh, the, the, the way the tongue bowls are displayed as they would have been packed um, in, in the ninth century. And they were stored inside these big storage jars coiled helically and then there was like a sort of organic bubble wrap around them like I don't know what it would have been straw or mung bean or something and they really protected them um, during the voyage during the you know the, the waves and the winds and all that sort of thing but also upon impact with the reef um, the seabed and then as the shipwreck falls apart and this is something um, Michael Flecker sort of explained to me just very recently that there are different stages of breakages with the ceramics with the the initial wrecking, then when the ship hits the bottom of the ocean floor, and then over the, the ensuing decades as the ship falls apart and disintegrates, that's when more breakage occurs. But one of the amazing things about the Changsha bowls and the Balitung, the Tang collection, is that they were so, some of them were so beautifully preserved that when they went to, I think it was John Guy at the V&A, he, he said that the glaze on them was still gleaming and 
it was almost like they were fake. They, I mean, they're, they're over a thousand years old, old by that point, and they've been so beautifully packed, so, so sophisticated with these packing techniques that they, they still look like this after so long submerged in organic bubble wrap. So mm, yeah, John has, John has tuned in actually. He, he joined yeah, so us about 25 minutes ago. So, John, I, you've been mentioned twice already. So, yeah, I definitely have to. Uh, there he is. I definitely have to organize that date for you, John. Uh, Are you John, on mute? You're on mute, John, if you want to. Still on mute. John, you're on mute. You need to unmute yourself. Oh. <laughs> oh maybe I can do it for him. Oh. Maybe by 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 the unmute himself, I could I could add uh, the the Isinia companies uh, placed uh, the better ceramics into. Oh, here we uh, go. Hi, John. Hello. You're referring to my uh, earlier avatar, the VNA, um, and uh, I, I saw within a few weeks, I believe, of when the uh, Changsha material was first appearing on the market in Jakarta and Jalan Surabaya, the. Um, Examples of these Changsha wares uh, were bought, uh, uh, appeared in London, uh, bought in to be shown to me, and um, yes, I'd seen many hundreds of uh, shards of this sort of material over the decades preceding, uh, and these were in such pristine condition. One's first reaction would say, "Might well, it's clearly these are uh, uh, very, very skilled reproductions," um, and of course, when you Close to scrutiny, it was very clear that they were genuine, and um, what we were looking at was something quite astonishing uh, in terms of that cargo as it emerged uh, over the, the following year or so. Um, so yes, that was <laughs> funny. You should remember that anecdote. Oh, well, I've um, I've written my PhD about that shipwreck, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Um, can I just add one more thing about this? Sorry, Horst, I know you were mid-sentence, mid but this idea of flooding the market and the value of the bowls. So when the Tang shipwreck was salvaged and um, the commercial salvage company was looking to sell it, there was this um, sort of quandary, do we, do we allow private collectors and museums to cherry pick the best objects, like the oversized UR and the gold cup? Or do we try and sell it as a single assemblage? And they were very committed to trying to sell it together. Um, but you, there were also economic benefits um, in keeping the assemblage together because if you flood the market with 55,000 Changsha bowls, you know, it's much more valuable actually to keep it, particularly in an assemblage that's got so many multi-duplicate ceramics, it's much more valuable to keep it together. And thank goodness it was because it's it, this incredible scholarly resource now. But I think um, in those early days when they were estimating the value, I think Sotheby's and Christie's estimated the value of the bowls at about between three to five US dollars per bowl. Yeah. They're a lot more valuable now if you're uh, <laughs> talking about market demand and uh, provenance. But yes, that, that's, a, that's a discussion maybe for another day. And, and, it's important, and, and listen, if you see those things on the market in the antique shops of Jakarta, you shouldn't be buying them. Yeah, absolutely. It's encouraging looting and salvaging. So that's yeah. really important. I think we should all make that clear, yeah. That, yeah. That it's, but Horst, I don't know if any follow-up on that, or we might take one more question and then we'll call it a, call it a day. Yeah, the one thing was about the uh, uh, the tea where the, the Europeans transported the ceramics in, so they wouldn't break. And Sherbon Rack, uh, they were just in, in long, as I say, they were packed one in another. And apparently there was some leaves around it or so, some leaves in between, but they weren't packed overly at least not the, uh, the the very common ones. They weren't packed overly carefully. Um, there is a a big find. I guess it is off uh, Samarang or somewhere in Eastern Java. 
um, where there is lots and lots and lots of broken ceramics on, on, on the sea. Apparently, uh, it had to do with the loading and unloading. On the ship itself, ceramics wouldn't break so easily. Your main problem would be the loading and unloading. Mm. That's where you... Yeah, that's a good point. And I guess that's why we see so at, at, at these sort of port areas, even in the archaeological record, then maybe that's, I guess, what Yeah, yeah, like, like Guangzhou. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Okay, great. Let's just take one more question. I guess a few people are still asking about Chinese ships. That's something that does uh, interest people. <laughs> um, one is like, okay, Abu Abab Kal asks, you know, what do we know about these Chinese ships? Where were they going? And what did they carry? Uh, where were the wrecks found? I think you sort of addressed that to a certain extent. Um, then Hans van der Bunt asks, um, can we conclude or assume from the lack of Chinese ships wrecks found that Southeast Asian sailors with their own ships transported and sold Chinese products further to Africa, Middle East and Europe? Um, I, so again, I, I guess that's a related question, you know, where, well, it, yeah, who's shipping, who's shipping what, where, and, and uh, where does the, uh, the who's, who's got the monopoly in some ways. Um, just, and then the follow-up question, uh, the role of Borneo, it is a, that's an interesting question as well, particularly in the 10th to 12th century. So maybe we could just wrap up with, with that course, if you want to, just yeah. things about that and then we'll, we'll call it a, a night. At the start of the presentation, I, I tried to show how far the wind can take you in one year. Um, as Natalie already said, you want to do the whole trip from Persia to, to China, you're facing a major risk. Um, Captain Abara was the first, they said, the voyage back and forth without a mishap. And uh, Buzuk tells us a very funny story about, about Captain Abara being stranded somewhere in the Paracelt Islands. Though he did the seven voyages, he still lost his ship somewhere. Happily, he was rescued, all the rest died, as, as the story goes. It is much more safe to do one of the uh, possible voyages in one year. You would go from China to Sumatra, for example. That is easily done. It takes you something like a month or two. And you have time enough to refit your ship, to trade, to sell, um, and go back next year to China. You just the same wouldn't need so much knowledge about sea lanes. Where are the reefs? What is the wind? What could happen here? What could happen there? So any kind of major trade, like say in ceramics with big investments, in my personal opinion, wouldn't go much further than at the very best two of these. We'd have a lot of trade between Persia and India, between Arabia and India. We'd have a lot of trade between Persia and uh, Eastern Africa. And whatever you carry to one of the, the ports on, on, on these uh, routes could be recarried by another ship to another port. And you wouldn't risk overly much in terms of life and in terms of loss of investment. You can sell your stuff, let's say, in, uh, in Baghdad, after you took it from India, and they are in, uh, in Siraf, and they then take it down to Malindi. So you concentrate on what you're doing. Um, the idea of the Persians doing all the, all the trip must have had to do with 
high difference in, in prices of certain very small uh, objects they could carry. Um, we were talking about silk. One of the most expensive silks um, being sold in Amsterdam in the uh, 17th century were the kimono given by the emperor of Japan to the Dutch trading company. They each year got something like 10 or so. And those were taken to Amsterdam all the way. And they were sold there for very, very high prices. This is something to make money with. This is something where you would risk something more. Um, I hope that first part of the question. Uh, the question about uh, Borneo, Kalimantan. There is some finds of a, something like a port city in southwestern Kalimantan. Uh, we have Brunei. Um, we have for today's Pontianak. Um, these, uh, what is the remains we have? Start with uh, Hinduistic uh, uh, temples or stuff that has to do with Indian ideology. Uh, because Southeast Asians wouldn't build much in terms of a temple or so. They'd build a kind of marae and that would be made mainly out of timber. Uh, so it would be lost in a, in a jungle or in a, under tropical conditions. Indian ideas must have come by sea. So Kalimantan, yes, there would sure be a chance. The Chinese often enough uh, mention uh, a camphor, which is coming from Sumatra, but just the same from Kalimantan, from Borneo. If you have a product, you have a good chance, or you have really a, you should join one of these trade cycles. But once again, I personally would not think that many people the whole voyage all the way on one ship, or that one captain would risk his ship for the whole voyage all the way. Okay, great. I think um, on that note, um, I'll bring this to a close. It's uh, 8.20, oh, just almost 8.25 here in Singapore. And I know it's a bit later for Natalie over in Sydney. So appreciate you uh, staying with us. Uh, yeah.